like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Um, we've been looking at a set of three parables, and these parables were a response to the Pharisees challenging Jesus. Where'd you get this authority? So Jesus gives them three parables, and each parable is challenging them further and further to show them that the Pharisees are sort of in deep weeds. And not only deep weeds, they're going to be severely judged. And they, so these parables go back. So it starts with, you know, the Pharisees challenging Jesus, then Jesus confronting the Pharisees, and now the Pharisees are back uh, challenging Jesus again, uh, but in a different way. And so we come to this series of exchanges, and this first exchange uh, is sort of one of his most famous declarations. So if you get it, so take a minute, read Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. know that this word is for us. So before we focus on the religious leaders or the Pharisees or anybody else, let us remember that you have given us your word to search out our hearts and to see how we stand before you. So this morning, by your spirit, apply this truth to our own hearts in such a way that we are not only attentive hearers, but willing and joyful and thankful doers of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Once again, this passage divides quite easily into three sections. So if you look at verses 15 through 17, you'll see the plot which has been hatched by the Pharisees and then implemented by the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians. Uh, in verses 18 through 21, you'll see Jesus' response to that plot. And then in verse 22, you see the aftermath. Uh, so again, beginning with verse 15 through 17, it's where we see the Pharisees setting a trap for Jesus. And again, we need to remember that these leaders of Israel had been strongly, I mean, in a series of parables, rebuked by Jesus. And so you can just imagine they're pretty much a little upset with Jesus. Because they've been embarrassed in front of the crowds. They've been confronted. And so now they go off by themselves. And they're going to come up with a plot to trick Jesus. And their plan is basically to pose a question to Jesus that he can't answer. Uh, that if he does answer, it's going to put him at risk with either the populace or the, the Roman government. Uh, so they want to ask Jesus a question that if he answers publicly, no matter how he answers it, he's going to be in trouble. Uh, so now though we're told in verses 15 through 17 that the Pharisees are doing the plotting, this time they don't carry it out. They've made the plot, 
And then they've said, okay, we're going to send our disciples to go and confront Jesus. Now, I have no clue as to why they did that. Um, I can come up with all kinds of hypotheses in my head and ideas. Um, but I do know that the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. So maybe they just didn't even want to get close to the Herodians. But they said, we'll just send our disciples. But for whatever reason, the Pharisees are staying in the background. And maybe, again, they just don't want to be confronted by Jesus. So it's okay to have their disciples. Um, and again, the Pharisees and the, the Herodians hated each other. And they were both diametrically opposed to this idea of a poll tax giving money to Caesar. And for the Pharisees, they thought it was something you shouldn't do. That um, they thought that those things that the Roman emperor claimed, the things that he said about himself or that was on the coin, were heretical. They were blasphemy. So they didn't want anybody to pay for this poll tax. The Herodians, on the other hand, were in favor of it. Uh, they wanted the people to pay the poll tax because they were in favor of Herod. And not only were they in favor of Herod, if they were afraid that if the poll tax wasn't paid, Rome would get upset and then they would come in and they would put a tighter grip on the people. And so they said, you know, just pay the tax and we'll avoid any hassles. Um, so these two groups hate one another but they come together for one reason, to trap Jesus. And it is amazing how many groups in our culture or in our society we disagree with each other on all kinds of issues but come together against one common enemy. So they pose this question to Jesus that would have presented a dilemma for him. They ask him, should the people pay the poll tax? Again, it was a question designed to trap Jesus, offered with all the insincerity of an enemy as masquerading as a friend. He's got all the flattery, he's got all of that there, but it's all for the purpose of tricking him. Teacher asked one of Christ's opponents, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God. You know, it sounds so, oh wow, these guys are going to, they really think I'm special. I can remember getting a letter when I was at Christ Church of Oakbrook from, from a person complimenting me, telling me how wonderful I was, and they wanted me to be on a board. And I went home and I showed it to Gwen. I said, look at this, isn't this wonderful? And she goes, you're kidding, right? I go, what do you mean? Do you know why you got that letter? I oh, yeah, because they think I'm wonderful. <laughs> and she goes, no. You got that letter because you are the executive pastor of Christ Church of Oakbrook. You have connections. I'll, re I'll write the return letter. <laughs> I never saw it. I never saw what was written in that letter. Um, but I sort of bought into that false flattery. You know, I, I sort of bought into that, say, saying that, you know, we really want you. And they really didn't want me. They just wanted the connections. 
So they're given this false flattery to Jesus. Um, so the, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the question would be similar to asking someone, have you stopped beating your wife? Because no matter what you say, it's not going to look good for you. Yeah, I finally stopped beating her. <laughs> or, no, I have not. It's a trick question. Um, without the yes or no, you're bound to end up looking pretty bad. But the Jewish people hated the emperor and his burdensome taxes. If Jesus answered yes, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, he'd be setting himself up as a puppet for the Roman government or as a collaborator. Little more than a tool of the Roman government and a tool that the people believed that the Messiah was going to set them free from the Roman government. And so, but if he said, on the other hand, no, it is not part of God's law to pay such homage to Caesar, he would immediately throw himself upon, open to accusations from the government of being an insurrectionist. And that would be punishable by death. So it would give, them, give his enemies the grounds that they sought. So if he didn't get in trouble with the government, they thought surely he's going to get in trouble with the people. And Jesus' response is nothing short of brilliant when it comes to this. In one sentence, Jesus says more about the church-state relationship than most people say in a book. At the same time, he perceives their motives and goals. In verse 18, Jesus says, you know, he perceived their malice. Basically, he says, I know you're testing me, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to give you a response that you can't respond to. And so Jesus, is, in response to this question, rightly brands them as hypocrites because they're pretending to be one thing and doing something else. And then Jesus responds with, show me a denarius, he said. And you could just imagine somebody in the crowd said, okay, well, I got extra one. And just sort of hands it to Jesus, and Jesus just holds it up and says, okay, whose picture's on here? Well, Caesar's. Okay. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then you could almost see him flipping over the coin where the emperor's mother is there with the terms that he is like a, a priest that he should be worshipped. And then he sort of sharply says, and by the way, Give unto God what is God's. You know, So go ahead, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay that tax, but make sure you give to God what is God. Um, it was a remarkable answer. Not merely because it displayed the genius of Jesus in getting himself out of a jam, which he seems to do all the time, um, but even more because of those words suggest what is the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man? And sometimes I think we get that really confused. We get confused. What is our responsibility when we take a look at what's going on around us? We wonder, we wonder about what is the linkage of godliness and politics, of Christianity and politics, uh, especially around certain holidays, Independence Day, election times, when we start to see what's going on politically, we begin to wonder what is the Christian's responsibility 
in all of this. We see things that are going on on a daily basis. And we begin to wonder, what is the Christian's responsibility in regards to obedience to the government? What is the right relationship between personal faith and public life, between the government and the church, between Christianity and politics? Um, and I think to get an answer to that question, it may help us to even go deeper and go, what really is the appropriate role of the Caesars of this world? What is the appropriate role of the government in this world? And as I read the scriptures, it is clear to me that the institution of human government or state was really instituted by God. And it was for the purpose um, to protect people. And I know when we take a look at our government and we take a look at what's going on in our world, it's, it seems a little naive to say that this was all instituted by God for our benefit, for our protection, um, where individuals could be free to choose God's way and live it out. Um, especially when we see what's going on. But when you look through the scripture, it seems pretty obvious to me that even Moses was set up to be a judge before he even got the Ten Commandments. And so you just see this. Um, one author wrote that the state was God's emergency measure invoked to deal with the emergency condition of sin. The state is called upon to act as God's hand, restraining the expansion of evil and chaos, enforcing laws which protect liberty, and upholding principles of justice and due process that keep the weak from being exploited by the strong. That was the purpose of the government. Um, and when those things are done by the government, both God and humanity are served. It is for this reason that the Apostle Paul urged Timothy, pray for kings, pray for all of those who are in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. That was the purpose. Um, and so in that spirit, Christians ought to be the last in society to mock, to ridicule, to deride public officials, and the first to show a profound respect and prayerful concern for all who serve in government. Now, I have to tell you that I haven't always done that. It is much easier for me to be critical than it is for me to be prayerful. It is much easier for me to be critical than it is for me to be respectful. But at the same time, at no point, however, was the state ever to be regarded as the principal agent of redemption in a society. And I think that's sometimes where Christianity misses it. We somehow think that the state, if we get the right people in, that will be the redemption of our society. Restrain evil, yes. Renew spiritual life, no. The government is never there for the purpose of redemption. The government is never there 
to renew spiritual life. The government isn't there to be the moral filter. And sometimes we think that that's the fusion of government and Christianity. Finally, that would take place. No. Uh, in his book, Kingdom of Conflicts, Chuck Colson warns against that kind of utopian vision that some Christians have for the fusion of religion and politics. If what we are waiting for is a spiritual renewal of our government to lead us out of the moral chaos of our day, then we are putting our hope in the wrong place. And in so many times we put our hope in a politician thinking that's going to be a spiritual revival. That they will finally get it right. They will finally put in laws that go consistent with the scripture. And that there will be some kind of renewal. Um, but that doesn't happen. We're putting our hope in the wrong place. For just as Jesus didn't allow Peter to have the sword, he didn't give the keys to heaven to Caesar. He gave them to the church. That the church, that's God's responsibility. Give unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give unto God what is God. And if we are to follow Jesus' commandment, then we must not only give Caesar respect in political manners, but we must also render unto God what is God's. And again, I think this is where we struggle. Because I think a lot of Christians are very easy to be critical of what's going on in the society around us, but we don't take the time to give to God what is God's. When you see what's going on in the church today, when you see the lack of community, when you see the lack of commitment, when you see the lack of discipleship making, when you see the lack of evangelism, when you see the lack of things that the scriptures clearly tell us God wants us to do, then I think we have this group that's saying, this is what's wrong, but I'm not going to render unto God what is God's also. I'm not going to render unto Caesar, and I'm not going to render unto God, I'm just going to render unto me. Um... So Jesus is speaking to people who are pretending to be religiously scrupulous about this payment of this poll tax. They were pretending to be very zealous about it. Um, but in reality, it had nothing to do with Jesus. It had nothing to do with God. So what does all this really mean? I just think a few practical applications. And normally I don't do this. Normally I don't. I don't close with what I think are practical applications. So this is really a departure for me. Um, but first, I believe it is our responsibility to hold government accountable. I believe that. When governments fail to restrain evil, when they fail to preserve order, when they fail to protect the defenseless, when they fail to promote justice, um, I believe that God-honoring citizens are called to remind the government, either by vote or voice or presence, that they are neglecting their duty. When a political body oversteps its God-given role by claiming power to dictate religious values, or persistently violating a higher law of God, then Christians have a responsibility to challenge that. You know, 
when the government feels that it's higher than God's law, we have a responsibility to challenge that. Secondly, it's our calling to be salt and light. Um, some of the greatest gains of the kingdom of God is what Chuck Colson called little platoons of believers, little platoons of people that went out and got involved in a cause. And because of that, lives and society was changed, whether it be from the abolition of slavery, the gaining of civil rights, the establishment of Habitat Humanity, who does more for the homeless than, I don't know if anybody does more, fighting the pornographic sex and drug trades, for a group of people starting Wayside Cross and Hesed House, and some of the things that people have done to help take care of the marginalized, to help take care of people who haven't been able to take care of themselves for whatever reason, or take care of people who have made serious mistakes but have served their time and are now trying to get their lives right again. There's all kinds of situations where people are saying, we're going to make a difference. And it's important to note that such people have not tried to hurl Bible verses at people, but instead have just modeled Christ-like love on a daily basis and made a commitment to say, I'm going to make a difference. Now, I've never felt that the church, an organization like River Valley, should lead the charge in that. But I believe every Christian has a responsibility in their relationship with Christ to say, what cause, what things do I see that I need to make a difference in? Because it's going to be different for each of us. I may have a special place in my heart for mentoring men at Wayside or that somebody else has a special place in their heart for social justice in another area. And whatever it is, it's people saying, no, God is calling us to be salt and light. I can render unto Caesars what is Caesars. I can obey the law. I can do that. But I need to also render unto God what is God's and what is God telling me to do that may be different. So it's the responsibility of people of faith to hold government to its God-ordained role. And it's also our calling to be salt and light through the active involvement in the public arena. And it might even be somebody running for office. Um, and finally, to give God his due in the public arena means coming out of the closet about one's faith. And I think this is the most important thing. Historian Will Durant once said that the greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism. It is not Europe versus America, not even the East versus the West. The greatest question of our time is whether men can live without God. That's the greatest question. And what the world needs is more of us to take a stand and say, no, 
Man cannot live without God. Um, people need to hear that we believe that the deepest solutions to our culture's problems, to our society's struggles, to our political issues, to our injustices, to all of the things that may burden us, that the deepest solution is not government. It's the kingdom of God. It's the government of God, not the government of man. We must resist being silenced by the contemporary claim that pluralistic nature of the United States is requires that discussions about absolute or religious values are barred altogether. What society now calls pluralism is not pluralism, it's censorship. And we have censored the Christian community instead of saying, no, these deepest values that we hold, you can't prevent me from sharing the reason why I hold those values. The reason I hold those values is because of what God has done, what he is doing in my life, and to continue to make those difference. So politics may be about important things, so render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, but not ultimate things. So render unto God what is God's. Ultimate things come from God. If you speak about having a higher purpose, a renewal of the honest questioning and courage that is set forth to make a difference or to establish an ethic that's worthy of a purpose, of human purpose, you don't join a political party. You join the church. Political parties are fine. But if you're going to make a real difference, it's because you join the body of Christ. Christ is the one who's leading. Christ is the one who's making a difference. You see, every time someone truly receives the gift of forgiveness, which pours from the cross and invites Jesus to become the Lord of his, her thoughts, or her, his or her thoughts, and all of their life, an amazing thing happens. People start living without having to be coerced by the government. Because the government of Christ starts to change people from the inside out. Can you imagine the political impact of every one of us gathered here today? And every person in every church that is gathering today throughout the United States, if every person was able to lead one more person to Christ, in a year. Think about the revival that would take place. And if every person that led one more person to Christ said, I can do the same. And how quickly the change would take place. But in the Christian community, we don't talk that way. We'll get into the political arena, we'll get into the political season, and we will start talking about who we're going to vote for, why we're going to vote for them, and how they're going to make drastic changes for our society, when we should be spending the same amount of energy praying for, leading people to, talking to them about a right relationship with Jesus Christ, because if a revival is going to take place, it's not going to be because of the government. And it's not going to be because of who we elect. 
It's going to be because the body of Christ becomes the body of Christ, and the people in the body of Christ render unto God what is God's, and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and they don't confuse the two. They just don't confuse the two. Jesus' words pierce and they amaze. And then you look at verse 22. Hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. They were amazed at the wisdom of Jesus. But the hearts were so hardened, they said, I'm amazed, but I'm leaving. Matthew Henry wrote, you expect to read they were amazed and submitted to him. That is what you expect to read. You expect to read they were amazed and followed him. But what you read is that they were amazed and left him. See, it's not enough to be amazed by Jesus. He doesn't want our amazements. He wants our life. He wants our whole life. He wants our fellowship. He wants our worship. He wants our submission. He wants it our acknowledgement that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he wants us to render unto him what he is due. So go ahead and give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But absolutely, make absolutely sure that you give unto God what is God's. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. And Lord, we ask for your continued guidance and direction and blessing upon each of our lives that, Lord, we can truly understand what it means to give unto you what is yours. Lord, it's okay to be critical of things that are not taking place. But change my heart. So that when I see those things, I pray for them instead of just critiquing them. And I move in my life, Lord, that I truly can understand what it means to render unto you what is yours. And that, Lord, by doing that, one by one, lives can be changed. And as lives are changed, a town is changed. And as a town is changed, a culture is changed, and a state is changed. And, Lord, that it only comes through a revival through you. So help us to let go of this concept that if only the government would get it right, we'd be okay. It's when we get our lives right with you that things become okay. So Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things. They have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.